Hey guys, I'm Eric Olson, and welcome to another episode of the Science Centric Podcast. I'm really excited about this episode because it combines two of my all time favorite topics science and food. More specifically, we're talking about the gut microbiome. That's the collection of microbes living in our digestive tracts and concentrated in the large intestine. And we're also talking about the foods that help these microbes to both survive and to thrive. Science is revealing that a healthy microbiome has a number of important benefits related to digestion, weight loss, the immune system, and even our mood. Our guest in this episode, Catherine Harmon Courage, has written a whole book on this topic titled Cultured, How Ancient Foods Can Feed Our Microbiome. We spoke about what the microbiome is exactly, what happens to our health when it gets disrupted, and also her journey around the world to find fermented foods that support a healthy gut. Before we dive into it, I just wanted to mention that you can win your very own copy of Cultured. Just head over to sciencecentric.com giveaway for more details. Katie, welcome to the Science Centric Podcast. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Great. Um, I thought a good place to start, and we can talk uh, about, you know, all about your book and, and various aspects of it. But to start, could you just tell us what the microbiome is? I mean, we hear so much about this. I feel like it's in the news. And having read your book, I still I feel like I, I, I understand it better. But maybe for the audience, you could explain uh, what it is exactly. Yeah, definitely. So the microbiome, when we're talking about it, is we're generally talking about the human microbiome. And so those are all of the microbes that live in us and on us. It's bacteria, fungi, archaea. Um, we've got them all over our skins, in our guts, of course. Um, and so that is the human microbiome. Um, but of course, everything really has a microbiome. It's kind of a microbial world. We just happen to live in it. So your coffee maker has its own microbiome. Um, the subway of New York have their own microbiome, which is pretty gross. Um, public restrooms have microbiomes. The ocean, um, the soil, um, we're surrounded by all these different biomes that are inhabited by all these different microbes. So when we talk, too, about the human microbiome, as I mentioned, it really is different from place to place in and on our bodies. So for this book in particular, um, and what a lot of the science is concerned with right now, is the gut microbiome. And so these are the microbes that live. Generally, we're looking mostly in the large intestine, although there's different populations in the small intestine, too. Um, so we're just starting to figure out really how all of these microbes are are impacting our health and how we've evolved with them over these, you know, thousands and millions of years. So we have we have microbiomes like in our mouth and I think in the book you mentioned our armpits and you know various body parts but why why is the um why is the one in our gut so important? Yeah, so that's where most of our microbes live. So even though we do have plenty of microbes in our armpits and our mouths, um, really the bulk of them, and we're talking about, and you know, on the order of pounds of microbes in our bodies, um, they reside in our guts and primarily in our large intestine. And so they're kind of like the last um, last stop of our meals, if you will. <laughs> um, so all of the food that we eat, eventually, what our bodies don't absorb ourselves, um, makes it down to our microbes 
enzymes in our large intestines and they um, break down and consume a lot of this food that we haven't been able to absorb. And then they turn that into various compounds. So some of those are beneficial, some of those are harmful. So it's really, you know, this whole ecosystem that we're putting fuel in and then they're giving us different products. So we're just starting to really learn what exactly is going in on in there and who is involved. And, and why now, like, why is this so prevalent now? Like the, why, why did science sort of dismiss this or not know about it until now? And, and now you just see all kinds of probiotic yogurt and kombucha and all these different, uh, foods and things that are supposed to support the microbiome. But why, why, why was this ignored if it's so important? Yeah, that's a great question. So it has a lot to do with the scientific technology, I think. So I started covering this um, almost exactly 10 years ago. I was a little intern at Scientific American and <laughs> a study crossed my desk one day as I was looking for things to write about it. Um, and there was this consortium called the Human Microbiome Project. I thought, well, this sounds really interesting. I've always been interested in ecology. Um, so let's see what this is all about. So that was a decade ago and they were just starting to get a census of who was there, what microbes were in our bodies. And so it was really fascinating to learn about this unseen world that we really had no idea about um, previously. So the reason it was so unknown to us was really we didn't have the technology to get an accurate reading of who was there. So before, you know, a decade or so ago, the best way was to take samples and to culture them in the lab. So if you think about taking organisms from one environment and transferring them to another environment, so the human gut, which is warm, acidic, anaerobic, um, and then trying to grow them in a petri dish in the lab, a lot of microbes are not going to survive that transfer. You know, I'd say in the book, it's kind of like trying to take a sample from the Amazon River and, you know, grow them in mm -hmm. the desert. Um, you're really just going to get the really, you know, hardy, probably pathogenic species that manage to survive in that other environment. So scientists and medical professionals thought, well, there really wasn't a whole lot going on in the gut. And a lot of it, you know, a lot of the focus was on these microbes that make us sick, which is helpful. So we learned about E. coli and listeria and these things that do live in the gut when we're ill. Um, but we really didn't have a sense of all of these other microbes that were there that were maybe beneficial or neutral. Um, but what really changed um, 10 years or so, or so ago was the advent of genetic sequencing. Mm. And so the speed was improving, the price was coming down. Um, if you remember, sequencing the human genome took you know, so long and was so expensive, and they finally sequenced it. But now you know, we can get our own genome, you know, if not entirely, you know, largely sequenced for $99 or so. So the same thing was happening um, in the labs with the microbes. So they were able to finally do this genetic sequencing on samples, and these microbes didn't have to survive the trip, so to speak. They could just see whose genetic material was there to begin with. And that didn't matter. It doesn't matter if the, the bacteria or microbes are alive or dead because they're going to leave mm -hmm. that DNA behind that can be sequenced. Exactly. Yeah, right. Cool. Um, so... If we have a healthy microbiome, we probably feel great. There's nothing going on. You know, we're just, we're living our lives. We're eating food. It's passing through. What happens if our microbiome is disrupted and things go terribly wrong, um, which, which does happen? What, what does that look like and, and what are the effects? Yeah, so there are all different kinds of effects and we're still 
learning about these different outcomes and there can be different ways obviously that the microbiome can go wrong. Um, one of the most I think dramatic examples is a condition called C. diff which is short for C. difficile which is a bacterial overgrowth in the gut um, which can cause really terrible terrible symptoms. People are often hospitalized for it really bad gastrointestinal distress and sometimes severely even death um, if it can't be treated by yeah. antibiotics. So this often actually starts because of a lot of antibiotic treatments. Um, if people are going through intensive long-term antibiotic treatment, that can wipe out a lot of their kind of native, neutral, and beneficial gut flora. And then um, pathogenic bacteria like C. difficile can then kind of move in and take over. If you think about like a garden that's been, you know, had all the plants taken out of it, it's pretty ripe, open territory for weeds to come in right. and start growing. So, um, and often this, um, there are certain strains that are resistant to antibiotics. So more antibiotic treatment doesn't help and people can get really quite ill and die from this condition. Yeah. So that's, I mean, that's sort of the extreme case, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Where you've, you've just completely wiped out all your gut flora and fauna. Or is it fauna? I don't know. It's more than flora. It's, you know, <laughs> we're talking about different, <laughs> different areas of the phylogenetic tree, for sure. <laughs> Those categories don't hold up in this case. That's, exactly. Um, so that's, that's sort of an extreme case, but I, I think you, you make a case in the book that our Western diet does also does not support a healthy biome and or microbiome. So what what's going on there? Why why is what we're eating now compared to what we ate in the past as a species uh, maybe making things not so optimal for our, for our microbes? Right. And the answer here kind of surprised me when I started researching um, the book. I was really interested in the probiotic and fermented foods, and it seemed like such this interesting kind of sexy topic these days. Um, and it's everywhere now, you know, even my local Target. Um, don't have to just go to the farmer's market anymore to get kimchi. Yeah. But um, when I started researching the book, it's really not as much about these probiotic fermented foods as it is about fiber, which is not usually a very interesting topic. <laughs> or, you know, people don't think of it as an interesting food quality. By, by the way, that's my, my my wife is a dietitian, and that's actually her favorite topic. So I've I've definitely like recommended this book to her because <laughs> she loves that's to awesome. talk about fiber. So she, she's she's been Another she's one. been validated <laughs> she's validated by by your book. So that's yes. great. Yes. Yeah. So um so fiber is really the key. We you know we have all these microbes in there in our gut that we're just starting to learn about, but um, we've been neglecting to feed them well um, and in the past for you know most of our evolution our diets were extremely heavy in fiber we were eating tubers you know and nuts and berries and seeds and all of these things that are very high in fiber but just recently even really in the last hundred years or so we started refining our foods so much that we've really taken the fiber out of them and of course these days you can get foods with fiber added back in right, right. <laughs> but that's not quite the same as having this diverse diet of these kind of natural fibers um, because that's another aspect is we want to cultivate these diverse microbiomes for our health um, and that means feeding them a diversity of fibers because different microbes prefer different types of fiber so it's not just about supplementing with one single type of fiber as much as it is eating this kind of diverse fibrous more uh -huh. rustic diet i think <laughs> so that i mean that's 
that's the real fundamental problem here in, in the Western diet. We just don't eat enough fiber. I think that's a big, a yeah. big part of it. Uh huh. Mm. So we're eating, you know, refined uh, starches and potatoes and, um, you know, what else? Sugar, refined sugar, obviously, that mm-hmm. probably doesn't help. Yeah. Um, and actually, it's interesting that you mentioned potatoes because that was one of the surprising foods I learned about researching the fiber that feeds our microbes is there are the ones from kind of these you know, rugged root vegetables like Jerusalem artichokes and sunchokes, these little knobby tubers. Um, but the other form that surprised me was this form called resistant starch. Um, and one form in particular is resistant starch of simple carbohydrates that have been cooked and then cooled. Mm-hmm. So actually, like if you cook oh, even a white pasta and then cool it and eat it as pasta salad, the starches have actually recrystallized um, into a form that our bodies can't break down but that our microbes eat. So you mentioned potatoes. So cooked and cooled potatoes actually do have good fiber for our microbes. Oh, interesting. Which I was, you know, happy to learn about that. (laughs) (laughs) How about French fries? Is that... Ooh, that's a good question. Maybe maybe cold French fries if that's where you want to (laughs) go. Crossed. (laughs) <laughs> I, I i know those are gross because i've tried that and, and they're not yeah, they're not, not good, good they're really not good okay but potato salad maybe that's very interesting okay so so it's not it's not necessarily um you know what it's not necessarily what we would think of as like health food per se like a salad or something it's just that we're getting mm-hmm. these this variety of fibers from different sources and some of them like are unexpected as you mentioned um so I guess a diet that would be like high in meat and fat, for example, would not be supportive of, of a healthy microbiome. Is that correct? Right, exactly. And there's been some research looking at, um, especially, I think researchers looked especially at um, pork fats. Um, this was in mouse models, but they found that microbes actually take that and um, they can create this, or they make this compound and release it in our body. is called TMAO, um, and that's been linked to a variety of poor health outcomes like colon cancer. Um, and so it, we think about nourishing the microbes and feeding them, but just because their microbiomes don't mean that they always make good products for us. They're not yeah. always helping us, so we have to be aware of what we're feeding them too. Interesting. Hey, I just wanted to take a quick pause to thank HostGator, this episode's sponsor. HostGator is one of the world's top 10 largest web hosting companies with over 8 million hosted domains. They have around-the-clock support and all shared web hosting plans include a 45-day money-back guarantee. Now, I've personally used HostGator since 2008 for all of my hosting needs, and I really couldn't be happier. Sign up today using the promo code SCIENCE and you'll receive 25% off any new hosting plan. Now on with the show. Okay, so one theme that I encountered a a number of times in the book, or or one point that I felt like you were trying to make was that the uh, foods that we we consider probiotic, that we buy at the grocery store or whatever, um, those are not the same thing as our sort of native microbiome and but they can help they can help boost it they can help support it what what is the relationship there and and why should why do we need probiotic foods if they're not sort of sort of our our uh what do i want to say native microbiome or our our persistent microbiome i guess would maybe be a better word 
Right. And that's, I think, a really important distinction that often gets left out of the conversation. And that was the impression that I had when I first started thinking about this book was, you know, there are all these new probiotic foods, um, and isn't it interesting? And this is how we can kind of reseed our guts and restore our native gut health. Um, But as I was kind of looking into it, thinking about a book, a study came out showing um, that they'd given these volunteers a specific probiotic. And then when these volunteers stopped taking the probiotic, it was a matter of weeks, really, before there was no trace of that bacterium left in their systems. And I thought, well, that's too bad. There goes this book idea. So much for all that yogurt and keeper I've been eating. This is really, you know, I have to scrap this one and start over. So... But then I looked into it a little more, and that's where it was really interesting is these food microbes that we eat, those microbes are evolved to um, really thrive in those food products and yogurt or in um, sauerkraut. Um, that's really their happy home. Um, and then they can survive the journey in our guts, but they're not going to take up residence and really stick around and proliferate um, because they are. You know, our native gut microbes evolved to live in our guts and nowhere else, really. Yeah. Um, so, but just because these microbes that we're eating don't stick around for a long time doesn't mean they're not being beneficial and helping us along the way. So they have a lot of the same characteristics as our native microbes. They can make beneficial compounds. They kind of help regulate our immune system. So in researching the book, just traveling around the world and talking with different people and seeing how a lot of these foods are integrated into cultures, uh, people eat them all the time. It's not kind of, a, oh, I'm feeling a little off. I'll have a yogurt and then go back to my regular diet. Yeah. Um, or, oh, I had a kombucha this weekend and you know now <laughs> I'm going to feel great for the next two years. Um, these foods are just an integral part of their daily lives and their culture and they eat them you know multiple times a day. So they're constantly getting this influx of microbes. Um, so they're never without this extra source of all these potentially beneficial microbes. So, so let's take a scenario like you have an infection, you take a course of antibiotics and you think, gosh, I'm going to eat a yogurt and that's going to help my, um, microbiome flourish and come back. Um, but what, what's actually happening there? I mean, if you're on a course of antibiotics, does it actually wipe everything out and you're starting from scratch? Or how, how does your, how would your microbiome actually become reseeded then with, with new uh, microbes? Mm -hmm. So it doesn't usually totally wipe out everything, which is good, Um, but it can kind of, you know, deliver a hit, I think, to our native gut microbes. Um, But what we can do, you know, if you do, say, eat yogurt after a course of um, antibiotics, it is, even if those bacteria aren't repopulating your gut um, for the long term, they're not, you know, they might be helping out a little bit. They can increase the acidity, which is good Mm -hmm. um, for our guts because that can help the native populations rebound and they can also kind of perform some of these other tests that our native microbes do and helping to keep out invaders. And um, we also forget that microbes were the ones who invented antibiotics. They're an ancient, you know, defense mechanism that other microbes use to fight off other microbes. So, you know, they also can help fend off um, other harmful microbes that way too. Cool. Um, but the extreme example, I guess, if you mention reseeding, is that, um, and this gets back to our oh, yeah. conversation, is the way that researchers have now found to treat really difficult cases that aren't responding to antibiotics is to reseed the gut with fecal transplants <laughs> from donors. <laughs> so this 
you know, it's a really rigorous screening process where they can find um, donors to donate their healthy, healthy microbiomes um, for people who are super ill. And it's actually been so effective in treating um, people with this condition that they actually stopped a lot of the, they stopped some of the early studies um, early um, just because it was so effective and they stopped giving the control group antibiotics and started treating them with these fecal microbiome transplants, um, <laughs> which used to be delivered a little bit more crudely, but now they're in pill form, but uh, you I see. take a lot of them. <laughs> when I, when I, when I hear the term fecal transplant, I think they're actually like cutting up, open someone's gut and then <laughs> transplanting it. <laughs> In you can think of it as like from a, somebody else, yeah. but it, yeah, it's, it's less not. invasive than a blood donation. I'll say that. <laughs> yeah, that's um, but that's that's for sort of extreme cases. Like you, exactly. you, you would not want to be, you know, conducting these transplants every day or something. <laughs> so let's not right. give anybody the wrong idea. Yeah, that no, this is, no, this is going to help you. <laughs> no, there's some fringe websites that have home recipes for this stuff, but I think it's best to do this under medical supervision when the samples and donations can be screened. Yes, <laughs> yes. Because, because we really don't know so much about the microbiome and what it also can transfer to us. I mean, there have been studies in mice showing that when germ-free mice, so mice that didn't don't have microbiomes, are given in, um, the microbiomes of humans with all sorts of conditions from anxiety to obesity, then these mice actually take on those characteristics. So um, we don't really understand the mechanisms quite yet for how yeah. that's happening. But, um, you know, it is something that we do need to be careful with as we're as we're looking about transferring these, <laughs> these <laughs> qualities from one human to the next. Um, I'm, I'm really curious what that screening process looks like, but let's let's save that for another conversation. I um, think it's pretty rigorous. <laughs> But you can actually um, bank your own um, fecal uh, donation if you're going to be undergoing a really, you know, s severe treatment with antibiotics for a long time. Um, some people are banking their own microbes so that um, they could maybe restore their own personal microbiome rather than relying on somebody else's. That seems, for some reason, a little more palatable. I don't know why, uh, yeah. but it's just, it's all kind of gross, but... Um. Hey, sorry for the interruption. We'll get back to the interview shortly. I just wanted to take a moment to ask you for a favor. To continue bringing you great science content, we need your help building our community. There are several ways you can help out. One, tell someone you know about us. Word of mouth carries a lot of weight. Two, follow us on social media. We're at ScienceCentric on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And three, write a review for this podcast on iTunes. Reviews help this podcast get noticed. Thanks for your help, and now on with the show. Let's talk a little bit about some of the foods that you talk about in the book that you encountered, and you, sounds like you did a lot of traveling for to write this book. Um, I don't know what that experience was like, if it was stressful or fun or um, hopefully fun, but um, what were some of the more interesting foods that you encountered that you hadn't found before? And are there any foods that you have incorporated into your life, your lifestyle that you're eating now that, that you discovered uh, along the way? Yeah, so I think some of the more interesting foods I encountered were in Japan. Um, oh. I kind of selected a key food for each country that I visited. And in Japan, I was thinking miso um, because that's something that we have readily available in the U.S. and we do eat a lot of, and it's kind of this major um, fermented food in Japan. But when I got there, I was just amazed, and I ate at this 
really amazing restaurant that really focuses on fermentation processes. So I got to taste, I think maybe the most um, intense flavor I had there was fermented eel guts, mm. um, which were pretty <laughs> challenging. I'm <laughs> not big on the super fishy spectrum of yeah. foods. So, um, but it was really, really cool and, you know, presented in really traditional, beautiful Japanese fashion um, and really small portions. So it wasn't a bowl of fermented fish, <laughs> eel guts or anything, but, um, yeah, it was really quite lovely and quite amazing to see all of these different fermented foods and the creativity that the chef had used and presenting kind of these traditional methods in more um, contemporary ways. Yeah, and and I thought the some of the Asian foods that you talk about were probably the most interesting and the most foreign because you know we get we have yogurt and cheese from Europe and. Um, you know, fermented grains and things like that, which were maybe a little more, uh, we have a little bit of knowledge about cause they've made it into our culture, but the Asian ones just seem so foreign. Um, but, but fermented fish, that's actually pretty common in Asian cultures, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And, um, especially in some Southeast Asian cultures, fermented fish sauce. I mean, we have fish sauce that yeah. we use in our cooking oftentimes, but it's probably been pasteurized, but, um, you know, in in Southeast Asia, it's a really common condiment and they ferment actually all of these small catches in these giant vats at really high, you know, ambient air temperature, which is really warm. Um, so yeah, it's this kind of funky <laughs> fermented fish slurry, which is pretty Ugh. different than what we... <laughs> usually counter you know when we think about sauerkraut or yeah, right. <laughs> um, wild fermented pickles or something yeah um and y- you brought up a, a point there which is that a lot of these traditional fermented foods that that help support a healthy gut are being sort of homogenized pasteurized and so are they are they losing their benefits that that they had in the past Yeah, exactly. And so this is kind of a a crucial point, I think, in history, um, just as a lot of this pasteurization um, has taken hold, especially um, in other countries around the world. Um, And also, like you mentioned, kind of consolidating things into kind of single strain or multi strain processes rather than this old, more traditional wild fermentation process. So um, researchers are actually kind of racing around the world right now to sequence the genome of a lot of these foods because we are losing that microbial diversity Mm. as as the process changes and gets more industrialized and people decide they need to be freaked out all of a sudden about these foods, you know, that have been safe for thousands of years. because they're not strictly controlled in these, you know, sterile environments. So it's kind of, I think, a, you know, tipping point that we're at right now where we're trying to figure out exactly what is out there and the processes that these microbes are using to make these foods. But um, at the same time, this industrial force of trying to regulate everything. So (laughs) it's an interesting juncture we're at. Yeah. Well, and it's, um, I mean, even some of these larger manufacturers of these foods, um, you, you mentioned that, you know, they have these cultures, these microbial cultures that go back hundreds of years. And you had a great story in the book about a soy sauce, uh, factory that was just destroyed in Fukushima that <laughs> I don't want to give away your whole book, but I thought that was so funny that, yeah. that could you just, t- could you just talk about that for yeah. a little bit or just mm-hmm. give, tell us what happened there? 
Yeah, absolutely. So like you said, a lot of these production companies have been, you know, in the same family for generations and using the same equipment, especially, you know, wooden equipment, these wooden aging rooms that the microbes that go into making the food have actually established themselves in the room, in the area. So these areas have taken on their own microbiome that then help inoculate the food to really make it quintessentially from this producer. Um, And so as you mentioned, during Fukushima, after the um, earthquake and tsunami, this one soy sauce factory in Japan was completely wiped out. Their building was gone. Their stock was gone. So they really had no way of reestablishing their own soy sauce. Um, So they were kind of despairing because it had been, you know, in the family for generations. And then it came out that a local university that had also sustained a lot of damage had had one bottle in a a freezer, I guess, um, that the company had donated for research. And so from this one bottle of soy sauce, they were able to rescue the cultures and reestablish their own quintessential soy sauce. So that was kind of a cool cool story that I came across. That is so cool. And um, I mean, that's the cool thing about like, you know, living organisms that they can reconstitute themselves in that way. Whereas if you lost some other chemical formula or something, you wouldn't be able to to do that. Very Mm -hmm. cool. So what are foods that in the, the United States, who I imagine is most of the audience for this podcast at this point, um, what foods do we have access to that we can uh, eat or buy that would help us support a healthy gut and microbiome? Yeah, so on the fermented food side of things, I think it's a really exciting time. We're finally starting to get more of these foods in our you know daily lives. Um, like I mentioned, you know, we can get, you know, we just discovered that Target started selling kimchi <laughs> in our town um, and kombucha and all these cool foods that do have live organisms in them. Um, so I think they're more accessible now to us than they have been ever in the States. Um, But then on the other side, as we talked about, the fiber part of the equation, which I think is really almost more important, um, even if it's not, doesn't sound as exciting, but it doesn't have to be kind of this drag, you know, um, cardboard tasting breakfast cereals that we think of like all brand or something from the 80s and 90s. Um, There's really fiber everywhere and it's simple, you know, can be as simple as adding some beans to your salad at lunch or, you know, making sure you have more, you know, whole oats in your oatmeal rather than super instant oatmeal meal. Um, And one of the favorite foods that I found researching the book was that um, unsweetened cocoa powder actually has prebiotic fibers in it. So (laughs) I was excited to learn about that. Um, So I started drinking unsweetened hot cocoa in the mornings, um, which, you know, is delicious and also seems good for your microbes. So um, I think it's really everywhere. We just have to be a little bit more conscientious of making these small choices throughout the day to help feed our microbes. Yeah, well, I think uh, a lot of people are going to be happy to hear that cocoa is part of the, um, you know, supporting a healthy gut flora. Mm -hmm. Um, Anyways, the book, uh, again, is called Cultured, How Ancient Foods Can Feed Our Microbiome. Um, We barely scratched the surface of it. There's so much great information in it. And you're such a a gifted writer that uh, it was really a pleasure to read. So everybody should check it out. Thank you. And um, Katie, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. And uh, it's great to talk with you again. Thanks. Nice to talk with you, Eric. All right. Well, that's it for this show. Remember, you can win a free copy of Cultured. Just head over to sciencecentric.com slash giveaway to enter. Also, we'd love to hear your thoughts or questions about this episode. Email us at feedback at sciencecentric.com. The Science Centric Podcast is a FlowSpark Media production. 
Our audio engineer for this episode was Alexander James. Guest booking was handled by Melissa David. Our intro outro music comes courtesy of BitBasic. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Eric Olson. 